Amen. Thank you, David. Good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. If you've been a 10 o'clock service attender, you notice it's a little different this morning. We're not quite as crowded. It's because we've got over 60 people right now in our youth room uh, in our marriage class. And so we had over 26 couples sign up for that along with the leaders. It's the first time on a Sunday morning we've ever had to cap a class because we were out of chairs. And so uh, we, we took a bunch of, we added three extra rows of chairs to what was already up there. And so right now while you're in here, We've got about 60 folks in the youth room working on marriage, learning about God's design for marriage, and we're excited about that. That will impact not only our attendance during the 10 o'clock hour, but you notice that uh, the band members aren't up here on stage. They're in the marriage class. We said, hey, you go work on marriage, you come back and play uh, later on. So for the next eight, 10 weeks, it's gonna be a different formation up here on the stage in terms of you might come to one service and it's full band, you might come to another and it's not, you might come to a service like today and it's just two, uh, but just know that the other band members are, in, are pressing into marriage and uh, working on what God has for them in that, in that area of life. So uh, if you're a visitor with us, honored that you're here this morning. Uh, my name is Jason uh, Williams. I have the honor of being pastor here at the church. Um, I serve with a group of elders, among whom David, who just prayed, is one. Uh, there are six elders that lead the church underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I'd say this too, more importantly, you're surrounded by an amazing church family, as Joe Warren mentioned earlier in the welcome. Uh, so if you're visiting with us, glad you're here. We are going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're on the third week in our sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, this is not going to be a short sprint through the book of Acts. It's going to be more like a marathon uh, to go verse by verse, word by word through the book of Acts. And so that's our journey for a while. Um, we've, we've made it to Acts chapter 2. And so just a little bit of a, of a, of a background to, to know kind of where we are today and where we're going. So we've covered Acts chapter 1, and we've laid out two really important truths that will help us understand what's about to unfold through the rest of the book. So first of all, we saw the connection of what's happening in Acts to what's happening in the rest of the Bible. That since Genesis chapter 12, God the Father has implemented a mission to restore the nations. And so through this mission, Jesus has come to earth to continue and to carry that mission out. And what Jesus has said is this is an unstoppable mission. The gates of hell will not prevail against this mission. And so he dies on the cross, resurrects, ascends back to the right hand of the Father, not, after which, not, not before which he has promised to his followers, when I go to the Father, I will send my spirit to you, and it's to your benefit that the spirit comes, and he will empower you now to take this mission to the ends of the earth. So this unstoppable mission of God to restore the nations as one kingdom under God, that mission has been handed to a very, in, uh, a very unworthy group of folks, a very incapable group of folks called the church. And so because the mission that we're on as a church is an unstoppable mission, we have become the unstoppable church. Now, when I say that, I don't say that with arrogance or a sense that this is all about solid rock, but a sense that God has said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it through the least likely people that you would ever expect. We learn from the opening of 1 Corinthians that God didn't choose from among the noble, the wise, the super intelligent, the wealthy, the influential to bring his church together. But he actually went to the opposite. He went to the have-nots and the are-nots like us. And he's called us to be his church. That this unstoppable mission might go forward. And so we begin to see that 
There's a connection between what's happening right here today at Solid Rock with what was happening in the book of Acts. So today we're gonna make it to chapter two, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The arrival of the promised Holy Spirit. It's gonna be exciting, are you ready? Got your seatbelts fastened, ready to go. We're gonna cover a lot of ground this morning. Uh, there's sermon notes in the seats in front of you. Um, a lot of the scripture references that I will make, we won't have time to flip to them in the Bible, but they're there for you to go home for further study. If you are going to be in community groups next weekend, uh, be sure you write down in your notes all that God speaks to you today and take that with you. Stick it in your Bible, take it with you so you can share with your community group how God's challenging and shaping you as we open his word together. So that being said, we're ready to get started. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now we've, we've covered some ground to help us understand what's, what's taking place right here. So let me give you some background on Pentecost. Long before that word was used to describe a denomination or a charismatic group of Christians, that word Pentecost represented a, a, a migrant feast where the Israelites, the Jews, would, would migrate from wherever they had traveled to to live back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast together. And it would happen 50 days after the Sabbath that follows Passover. Okay, let me break that down for you. Let me put it in terms where maybe we can understand. So on Thursday night before Jesus goes to the cross, they're celebrating the Passover. He's in the upper room with his disciples and they're celebrating the Passover meal there together, which becomes communion for us. Then shortly after that, Judas sneaks out, goes and betrays Jesus and brings back his accusers and they arrest Jesus later that night, early into Friday morning. Okay, then Jesus is he goes through two trials. He's falsely accused. He is then persecuted, beaten, killed on the cross. On Friday, he dies. He's buried in a tomb. He resurrects on Sunday, which is the first Sabbath after the Passover. You following me so far? So this Pentecost is 50 days after that, okay? Now, so here's what we know. We know that Jesus, after he resurrected, before he ascended back to heaven, he spent 40 days on the earth walking with his followers, teaching them, talking with them, living with them. So then after he ascends then, we've got about a 10-day window of waiting right here in anticipation of the promised Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we have to do to try to get in the mindset of the, of the folks here who are meeting. We know this, Jesus has said, Hey, guys, I can tell that you get sad when I tell you I've got to leave. I can see it on your faces. But here's what you need to understand. It's to your benefit that I go. Because if I go, then I will send back my Holy Spirit to you, and it will be to your advantage to have the Holy Spirit rather than having me here in the flesh. And you'll know the Holy Spirit has come upon you because he will convict you of sin, he will guide you towards truth, and he will empower you to do ministry. Now, beyond that, we don't have a lot of detail of what to expect. So here they are in this 10-day waiting period. They watched Jesus ascend back to heaven. They were a little bit taken back by what they saw. Two angelic figures are sitting there at that moment, and, and they say, and these two angelic beings speak to the disciples and say, why are you gazing up into heaven? You've got work to do. Jesus gave you a mission. Now go, sit tight, and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting. Day one, Peter, John, there's about 120 of them. What are we waiting for? What are we looking for? I don't, was, that, was that the Holy Spirit? I don't know. No, that was just indigestion. Now my stomach was growling. Okay, okay. 
What are we looking for, right? Because to this point, they saw Jesus in the flesh and didn't fully know what to expect. And so we're opening the chapter on the Holy Spirit arriving, falling as a fulfillment of promise on these believers, about 120 now, all together in one place. Now, something important, remember what Jesus said? He said, when two or three of you gather in my name, I will be there in your midst. He said that while he was walking on earth as a forward-looking promise, promising the presence of the Holy Spirit when the church gathers together. And so we've got about 120 followers of Jesus gathered together now in one place as the church. And here we go, verse two. And suddenly, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if we just sit down for the first time and open our Bibles and we open up to Acts 2 and this is the first time we ever read the Bible, the first thing we ever read, we could be a little taken back by what just happened here. That's a little crazy. That's kind of Wizard of Oz kind of stuff, pyrotechnics, light show. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that this matches my expectation of what God is supposed to look like and be like. Like it's audible. You can hear the presence of God like a rushing wind. You can see it. It's visible. The best way to describe it, it was like tongues of fire. I don't know how else to describe it that just kind of came and rested on every believer. But if we'll open our Bibles to the beginning, Genesis chapter one, and read all the way through, we'll see that this is a consistent way that God's presence is manifested before the eyes and the ears of man. I'll just give you a few examples that'll help kind of jog your memory. How about the burning bush? God's presence is revealed to Moses there to capture his attention and to give him a mission. And God speaks to this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. We know that after the Exodus, after Moses leads the people of Israel out of captivity into the wilderness across the desert, they're guided by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, representing the presence of the Lord going before them, guiding them. In Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, where uh, Moses receives the 10 commandments. Look at this, listen to this description of, of Sinai in verse 18 of Exodus 19. Now, Mount Sinai, the whole mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has, had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like, like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This was the 10 commandments. In Deuteronomy, twice God is compared to an all-consuming fire. In the Gospel of John in chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about salvation and even beginning to talk about the Holy Spirit. And here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 8 of John 3. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is even teaching this, that, that there's a sense that the Holy Spirit is a lot like the wind. God's breath is compared to the wind in the Old Testament. So this isn't new revelation for those who know their Bibles well. 
Okay, we get to, the, to Revelation, the end of the temporal existence of man giving way to eternity. And God more than once reveals himself through what we call the storm theophany, where his presence brings about a sense of trembling like an earthquake. And there's thunder and there are peals of thunder and crashing of lightning representing the power, the majesty, and the glory of our God. So in the Bible, this is not an uncommon way for God to reveal himself. Now, I haven't felt the building shake yet this morning at Solid Rock. It's clear skies outside, beautiful morning. I haven't seen the tongues of fire. So what do we do with what's happening at Pentecost? And what does it have to do with us today as his church? Well, two words I want to I wanna sit on for just a minute. The first one is the word rested. Verse 3 says that these tongues of fire appeared to them and then Rested. That word in the Greek means sat on. Sat on them. Now, did you notice how many of them? How many? Every one of them. Now, we're going to see today that what's happening in Pentecost is so much bigger than just this moment in time. And if we, if we just read the verses and we get focused on what's happening just in this moment, I believe we could completely miss the significance of what's happening. So, in just that one verse, there's been a very subtle but significant shift in the way God's spirit inhabits and rests on or sits on his people. See, all throughout the Old Testament, we find God's spirit moving. Genesis chapter one, the, the spirit of God is hovering over the darkness. So we know the Holy Spirit's involved in creation. All throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowers prophets and leaders to lead the nation of Israel. Even the, the, the ones who came together, the artisans and the builders of the temple were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So it's not new for God's spirit to empower his people. Here's what's different though. The, the Holy Spirit is now sitting on each one of them. You see, the prophets longed for the day. Isaiah writes about it at least twice. Ezekiel writes about it. They long for the day that what they're experiencing with the Holy Spirit would happen for everyone. Even, even Moses, when the nation of Israel became jealous of his relationship with God, he even talks about that. He says, he says guys, listen, I, I feel that you're jealous because I have, I have experienced the presence of God, but I, but I long for the rest of you to experience it. And so there's this longing, this sense of what King David has as he's filled with the Holy Spirit that everybody else would have as well. And here in Acts 2, in verse three, when the Holy Spirit sits on all the believers, about 120 of them, it's a significant shift in the way God's spirit is gonna interact with his people. And we begin to understand more deeply why Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go. It's to your benefit that I go because as I go, I will be sending the promised spirit of God to you, but not just to a few of you, not just to the leaders or the prophets, but to everyone who believes. And this is what's happening here in Acts chapter two. And verse four says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we will be talking through the book of Acts quite a bit about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is some debate in the modern day church over how this works. Let me just give you a couple of the debates. Today we won't we won't conquer everything, but we'll cover some ground together. And so there are a couple of debates that might help you understand why at one church you might experience one thing and another church you might experience something else. Think of a spectrum, a theological spectrum. 
So in terms of the movement, the powerful, miraculous movement of the Holy Spirit, there's a spectrum of views on how he works today in the church. So on one end of the spectrum, we have the folks who call themselves cessationalists. Think of the word cease. And so for this group of folks, they believe, again, the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus, that his Holy Spirit is the saving work of God in our lives that transforms us. However, for cessationalists, when they look at the miraculous gifts of God, like what we just experienced here, speaking of tongues, healing, the powerful, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, they believe that those gifts ceased when the apostles died and gave way to a new era in the church. Okay, so there are, there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, highly respected scholars who land here. John MacArthur lands here. A fierce Bible teacher, loves Jesus with all of his heart, but believes that the Holy Spirit has ceased to operate in the miraculous ways. That's the cessationalist end. Now, on the far other end of the spectrum is where we find charismatics, Pentecostals, this idea that not only is the Holy Spirit still very active in the church today, miraculously the Holy Spirit is still doing these kinds of things. This is where you get to, uh, you know, like the gold dust revivals, you get to the faith healers, you get into the name it, claim it crew, and some of the, like the, um, the prosperity gospel folks that, that, that get into this idea that the Holy Spirit is the spirit to be conjured up and we'll know it because we'll all feel it when, he's in, when we're in his presence and he'll move through us in ways that we'll speak in tongues. And so there are some churches, even some Bible-believing, Jesus-loving churches that say, you aren't a member of this church unless you've spoken in tongues. See, that's the far other end of that spectrum. This is where you find Assemblies of God, Church of God, Pentecostal churches, okay? Both ends of the spectrum, folks that love Jesus, folks that believe what they read in their Bible, but land in different places on the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, there's a second debate that we'll talk about a little bit more this morning, and it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are those, if you think about the spectrum, who on one end believe that once you're, when the moment you're saved, you're filled, and you're as filled as you're ever be filled by the Holy Spirit in that moment, fully empowered, fully gifted. You've got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. But then on the far other end of that spectrum, there are those who believe that the filling of the Holy Spirit comes and goes that on days where I feel empty, I must be empty, so therefore I need to be filled again. And so there's this filling, refilling, emptying, refilling of the Holy Spirit for those who land on this end of the spectrum. And we're gonna talk about that more specifically in just a minute. All right, so all we know right now though, the Holy Spirit has sat, rested on all who believe, and they're all being empowered, which is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, right? Wait in Jerusalem, my, my, my spirit will come and rest on you and you will be empowered. You will be empowered to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, what we wanna do next is we're gonna take a few snapshots of what the Holy Spirit does across a little span of the New Testament so that we'll better understand what he's doing here in Acts 2. Okay, so I'm gonna cover some ground. We'll have these verses up on the screen. First of all, I wanna talk about the book of Acts in general. Now, historically, this, is, this book in the Bible is called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Church. I'm going to propose to you a new name for your book in the Bible. I know that's sketchy ground, isn't it? So here's what I would propose to you. If you look at the, the primary theme throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see something glaring at you. Starting in Acts 1.5, we covered this two weeks ago. Acts 1.5, we're reminded of this, that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's the opening of the book of Acts. Here we are in Acts 2. 
the Holy Spirit has arrived. Here's another example. When you get to Acts eleven 16, we're reminded of this again. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts has 57 references to the Holy Spirit. 28 chapters, 57 references to the Holy Spirit. The next closest book in your Bible is the book of Romans with 25 references. Next to that is 1 Corinthians with 20 references. And so here's what I would propose to you today, that Acts is not properly called the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit of God. The primary working person is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. It's less about us and more about him. It's less about what he's doing right, through the apostles, apostles and more about what he's doing. Now, if you want to call it the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, I'm good with that. But it's less about what the church is doing and it's more about what God is doing through the church. If you're taking notes with us, the book of Acts is primarily about the Holy Spirit. You're going to be introduced to, to new folks every chapter. Different people, people you've heard of before, people you haven't heard of. Paul is going to take a central theme in the book of Acts. But listen, the book of Acts isn't even about Paul. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing through Paul. You know what that says about us today? The solid rock is really not as much about us, is it? Your time here this morning is not as much about you and it's more about the Holy Spirit of God and what he wants to do in your life and through you. See, in the Bible, the central character of the Bible is not us. We like to try to read it that way, don't we? But it's not. The central character and hero of the Bible is God. And guess what? He wants that same thing to be true about our church today. That in our services, we would, even though we talk about announcements and here's what we're doing, this is more about what God is doing and less about us. And so the book of Acts is primarily about. All right. Verse Acts 10, 47, we're going to read this about the Holy Spirit. This is interesting because it springs up in the midst of a controversy. So there was two controversies going on. When does a believer receive the Holy Spirit? And is it okay to baptize with water the Gentiles? And so Peter's making a case here that the Gentiles ought to be allowed to be baptized. Okay? They were dealing with racial tensions even in the early church. And here's, here's what he says. Look at verse, this is uh, Acts 10, 47. He said, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So these folks are baptized by the Holy Spirit before they're baptized by water. So water then for us as a church is a symbolism, right? It's a beautiful outward testimony. First of all, as I'm, as I'm lowered under the water and I'm brought back up, I'm symbolizing that my life is, is now buried with Christ. The old me is dead and the new me is raised to walk, right? But look at what else I'm, being, I'm symbolizing, that my life has been baptized in the Holy Spirit of God. So Holy Spirit baptism doesn't have to follow water baptism. So more specifically, we'll see then as we go along, that the Holy Spirit fills believers at the point of salvation. The Holy Spirit fills believers at the point of salvation. These Gentile believers hadn't even been baptized yet and they are full of the Holy Spirit. 
But Ephesians 1, 13, 14, we read something else that happens at the point of salvation. In him, this is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Okay, so stop right there. You may have heard the gospel a million times throughout your life, but the time that you hear it and you believe it, something happens. Here's what happens. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, sealed. Now, what does that mean, sealed? Well, he goes on to say, here's what that means. It means that, you have been, that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that lets us know there's a permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, sealing me and guaranteeing me. I don't know if you remember King David's prayer in Psalm 51. This is the Old Testament. It's before the Holy Spirit of God had sat on everyone who believes. And in his prayer, he said, oh God, created me a new heart. He's praying this prayer of repentance. He said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David recognized that he was in an era of God's people where the Holy Spirit was a gift, but it wasn't guaranteed. God could take it from them. But now after this moment in, in human history, in the church, God's spirit has landed on those who believe and has sealed us. It's a permanent representation of the Holy Spirit in your life if you are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in you, filled you permanently with you. Now in a minute, we're gonna talk about empowerment for certain tasks and certain moments. In Acts 4.8, actually the whole chapter is a beautiful chapter. It's gonna take us about a month and a half to get there. So I'll just give you a, just a little trailer or teaser, if you will, what we're gonna read in Acts chapter four. Uh, Peter, as we'll read in uh, Acts 4.8, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he says to them, rulers of the people and elders. So he's standing up in front of a crowd, empowered by, filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches. And then at the end of the chapter, look at what we read in verse 31. The end of verse 31 says this, as a result of his bold proclamation empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So what was the evidence of the Holy Spirit in Acts 4? Well, in Peter's life, the evidence that he was filled is that he spoke boldly and proclaimed the gospel. Then for those who believed, what was the evidence in their lives? They, in turn, spoke the word of God boldly. The Holy Spirit fills believers to proclaim the gospel. If you're taking notes, you want to go ahead and fill that in. We'll talk about it for a moment. Fills believers and powers them to speak boldly, proclaim the gospel. Now, for you in Christ, you've been given that power. And it may not have happened yet for you on a platform like this, in front of a big crowd, like it happened for Peter in chapter four. But it has happened in your life in much more subtle ways and maybe what seems like smaller conversations. Maybe it was sitting with another person over coffee at Starbucks or it was some, a conversation that God presented you with in a break room at work. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit begins to give you words that you know you didn't come up with, right? All of a sudden, you're recounting verses of Scripture and sharing things that are true, and you're like, I don't know where this is coming from. That's the same thing that's happening here. The Holy Spirit empowering you to speak boldly about Jesus. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to read a story about the church where things have started to groan to the point where it's getting very chaotic and disorganized. And so the apostles are overwhelmed. 
okay? You know that, that moment where you just feel like everything around you is chaos? And so this is happening in Acts 6 for the church. The church is just exploding. These guys are like, what do we do? I don't know. I mean, we got to preach. We got to pray. We got to go visit these folks. And Jesus said, you know, take care of those who are hungry. How are we going to feed all these people? I feel like we're leaving people out. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, here's what they say. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or good reputation. Look at this full of the spirit and wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. So we see in Acts 6, the Holy Spirit is filling believers to serve in the local church. This is so important for you to understand this, Christians. When you get to 1 Corinthians 12 in your New Testament, Paul's gonna really land on this idea that the Holy Spirit in you has empowered you to serve one another. You've got different gifts, different ways of serving, but you've been given gifts to serve one another. If you're new to Solid Rock Church, you're just visiting with us, I'll just let you in on just a little, a little secret about Solid Rock Church. This is a serving church. When we look at the overall attendance of our Sunday mornings versus those who serve on a weekly basis, we tend to run a high ratio of volunteers and servants here at the church compared to maybe a, another church our size. I love that about you. You love to serve one another kids ministry and tech ministry and Bible studies and community group leaders and team leaders and all these different things that we do. Matter of fact, as you're walking out on the right, you're going to see an organization, acrylic organization of all of our team ministries. That's the, that's the categories and areas in which you as the church family serve. Here's what you have to understand about your serving. You, you realize that, you may not realize this, on Thursday evening, um, on Thursday evenings, it, it's big time around here. If you drive by the church, you can see a lot of cars. The worship team is in here running through, rehearsing. Our tech people are upstairs running through the words, making sure everything's ready for Sunday morning. The building prep team is here, making sure we've got the Bibles out, that everything in front of your seat is organized, ready to go. You've got the calendars, the connect card, all the stuff that's in front of you, ready to go. Every person who serves, serves empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even if you're straightening up paper, like that is a supernatural thing God is empowering you to do. I mean, think of it like this. Why in the world would you even want to? Really? I got better things to do on Thursday evening. I mean, isn't this the, you know, the finale of American Idol or America's Got Talent or something's got to be on TV worth watching, right? Why would I even want to care about straightening up papers and putting pens in? Why? Because the Holy Spirit is empowering you to serve. Without any recognition or applause, you're up here, you're giving your time, you're serving. Why? So that when folks come in, they're able to have what they need, that they could follow along and write down their sermon notes and have the calendar, and write down prayer requests, all those things. Everything you do to serve God is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just like these men here in Acts 6, they were waiting tables. Full of the Holy Spirit, waiting tables. Now, what happens next is huge. Acts 7, the very next chapter. One of these men, his name is Stephen. Full of the Holy Spirit, we already know that because it was required to come on and serve. Full of the Holy Spirit and he gets arrested. He gets drug out to the edge of town and he's told to recant his faith in Jesus. And so rather than doing that, he, what, what Stephen does, full of the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he starts proclaiming boldly the gospel. Amidst all this, the adversaries and those who are getting ready to kill him, he's preaching the gospel. And then at the end of Acts 7 and verse 55, look what the Holy Spirit does for Stephen. But he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Now, this is just one example of many examples of persecution you're gonna see and read about in the book of Acts. How did they do it? How did Stephen stand with such boldness and courage? Because the Holy Spirit of God was there giving them hope in the midst of persecution. You're gonna, get, you're gonna read about Paul getting run out of town only to do what? Lick his wounds for a second and run right back into another town. You're thinking, Paul, what are you doing, man? He's gonna get shipwrecked and you're gonna think, surely he'll never get on another boat. And what's he gonna do? Oh, there he goes, getting on another boat. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is there giving them hope in the midst of persecution. So, let's talk for a minute about being filled by the Holy Spirit, okay? Being filled by the Holy Spirit. One of our struggles as the modern day American church to understand the filling of the Holy Spirit as taught in the Bible is that we grow up from a very young age as either or thinkers. Either or, it's either this or that. I'm either gonna go right or left. The light's either on or off. I'm either Republican or Democrat. I'm, right, I'm white or I'm black. I'm, right, we're either or. And so we come across something like the Holy Spirit and we say, which one is it? It's gotta be this or this. Either believers are all filled with the Holy Spirit as salvation and they have all the Holy Spirit they'll ever have and all the empowerment they'll ever need or the Holy Spirit comes and goes and empowers and leaves and empowers and leaves. And so that, that causes us to do what? To divide, right? For the person who, who, who lands one way, no, 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 here's, here's the camp of thought that's right. And for those that lean the other way, right? No, 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 our camp is right and we we make it out to be an either or equation. Let me just read a few scriptures to you and then I'll share with you where we land as a church. And I'll let you wrestle with where you wanna land. In Romans 8, 9 and 10, and we'll put this one on the screen. The apostle Paul is teaching about your salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And here's what he says. Speaking to Christians, you however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. But then we get to verses like Ephesians 5.18. We're told not to be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was written to Christians too. So which one is it? If I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit. The same author, Paul, is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's telling them what? That's a command there. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which one is it? Now, here's what I would propose to you today. It's not either or, it's both and. It's both and. God has, if you have trusted in Jesus as your savior, he has filled you and sealed you with his Holy Spirit. But guess what? He's still doing what he's always done, empowering believers to, to specific tasks at specific moments and specific times, right? So, so it's not just I'm either filled or I'm not. I'm filled as God's son. I am filled with his spirit. And, and tomorrow morning, I might be at Starbucks and in, in that moment, God opens up a conversation and his spirit fills me in that moment to proclaim boldly and to share the word of Christ with that person. 
You see, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. It's the same way that Paul writes about your salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says you're saved by the gospel, this gospel that is saving you. Whoa, wait, 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 Paul. Wait, I thought I was already saved. Now, I heard the gospel. I believed it. I thought I was already saved. You are saved. Well, then why did you say saving? Because you are still being saved. See, that's the word in its original tense, be filled. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We just sang an interesting song earlier. Even though you're here, come. What, what an interesting lyric for a song. Even though you're here, come. What do we mean by that? How, first of all, what do we mean by even though you're here? Well, we know from the promises of God in the Bible that Jesus has said, where two or more gather in my, in my name, I will be in their midst, even though he's here. Right? So here's the caution we have to take. We cannot equate the Holy Spirit of God to a feeling. We can't. Because the Holy Spirit's presence is not based on a feeling, it's based on a promise. So even though you're here, come, why do we sing that? Because here's what's happened. Do you remember what the other lyric was? Awaken what's inside of me. Because even though you're here, come, now we're making it personal. We're saying, even though I know you're here, even though you're in my life, God, stir, move, convict, do whatever you want to do. Awaken what's inside of me. I already know you're here. I already know you're in my life. Even when I can't feel it, I know you're in my life, God, but stir in me. Make me acutely aware of your presence. Even though you're here, come. Why? Because it's not either or, it's both and. Let me just share with you um, a little bit of a discussion that we had in our community group last time we met. And this was so helpful, I think. We were asking the question about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and recounting uh, moments where we could say, yeah, I know God's spirit was in my life. And we had a couple of folks struggling to be able to, to share a story where they could say, I, I know the Holy Spirit was moving my life. So we pressed in and we dug a little deeper. And what we discovered is that, that for many of us and for these particular individuals, there were long seasons of, of struggle, darkness, even depression. Moments where they felt very far from God. But as we look back in hindsight, they were able to testify and say, only by the power of the Holy Spirit did I make it through such a time. See, that's why we can't equate the spirit of God in our lives to feeling because oftentimes the most powerful displays of God's spirit in our lives is in, in seasons where we don't feel it at all. Now, young in my faith, my first encounters with the Holy Spirit, I got adrenaline rush, I felt it, right? Because feelings oftentimes accompany what God's doing, but we can't solely equate God's spirit moving in our lives to a feeling. We can't. And we gotta be so cautious that we don't call things God in our lives that, that it's not God, right? I can, get, I, can get, I can get feelings just from eating too many burritos at Taco Casa, right? We've got to base our understanding and what we believe about the Holy Spirit on the promises of God. I don't, I don't care if you walked in this morning feeling the presence of God. We've gathered in his name and he's here. If you're in Christ, Paul says that you've got his spirit. Now, here's the question. Do we believe that? See, here's what I think does happen is we walk in and out of really believing that. 
I do. I think sometimes we forget the spirit of God is working in our lives powerfully. When we look at a Christian's life who's maybe struggling with sin, maybe a Christian who's struggling with pornography, one of the issues in that particular person's life is that they have forgotten that the spirit of God is dwelling within them, empowering them and unshackling them from that addiction. Right, and we could just struggle with sin Paul said in Romans 8, listen, you're still, you're still struggling with the flesh, but now you've got God's got, got spirit in you, powering you, reminding you of what is true, reminding that Christ has set you free, reminding you that you're now a child of God, reminding you of God's presence in your life. And so we've got to be so cautious that we don't equate the Holy Spirit of God solely to what I feel in any given moment because some of the most powerful movements of God's Spirit in your life will feel really hard. Might even feel treacherous or scary. Think about Stephen, (laughs) right? He wasn't feeling it in that moment. He was feeling rocks pelt him. He was feeling life leaving his body in Acts 7.55. And what is happening? The Holy Spirit is in him and on him and resting on him, showing him hope in the midst of suffering. And so we must base our understanding of the Holy Spirit on the truth of God's word. If you're in Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and God still, as he always has, empowers you and fills you for specific tasks at specific moments, both and. That's where I land. That's where we land as a church. We believe that that God's Holy Spirit is still moving. We're not cessationalists, okay? We believe that God still works miraculously. His Holy Spirit still empowers for all the gifts. We have instruction from his word on how to use the gifts, but all of his gifts. At the same time, we don't say that you have to speak in tongues to be a member or to be a Christian. We don't land on that end of the spectrum either. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God moves in us and stirs in us and convicts us and guides us and empowers us to the things that he said he would convict us of and guide us towards and empower us to do. Now, verse five, Acts chapter two, verse five. This is where, for me, we're actually getting to the meat of chapter two. And I would even propose to you that what we're about to read is one of the significant turning points in the Bible, okay? When I think of the whole story of the Bible, this is huge what we're about to read. Let's read it and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. So starting in verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, that makes sense, devout men from every nation under heaven. So at this time in Jerusalem's history, the nations had kind of converged in Jerusalem. It was kind of a a melting pot of ethnicities from the nations. Continue reading this. And at this sound, what sound? Remember the Holy Spirit? Sounds like rushing wind. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, you, it's hard to see in the English translation, but the literal translation of these words is this. They were hearing it in their native or their begot or born language. Here's what we need to understand. Unlike America today, for these folks to function in society, they spoke multiple languages. Two or three languages was not uncommon. They had a functional language. They had a language they had to use in commerce to make transactions and to make deals in the market. But what's happening right here is much more profound than that. It's more than just practical needing to hear it. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is speaking to them in their native tongue. 
their born language. He's speaking into the identity of their ethnicity. Now track with me here. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking, speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamph Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. All, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, listen to this question because this is the question we're about to answer. What does this mean? What does this mean? It's gotta mean something. We're not just hearing it in a common spoken language like I'm hearing a language that I haven't heard since I was in my home village in Libya. What does this mean? Verse 13 says, others mocked them, said that oh, these guys have got to be drunk, which is a horrible explanation, by the way, right? Because when you get drunk, right, you don't, but that's the only explanation they had. Something weird is going on here. These guys are drunk, out of their minds. But the primary question is what? What does this mean? Now, all throughout the New Testament, you're gonna hear about and read about speaking in tongues. What's different about this moment from what we're gonna read about, it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is that there's no interpreters required here. This is a profound, isolated account where God speaks through his people in such a way that those who hear are hearing it in their native tongue. No interpreter is required. Later on, we're gonna read that where the gift of tongues is present, there's an interpretation that's required so that people understand what's going on. Not so here. What I want us to see is that what's happening in this moment is so much bigger than Acts 2. If we go back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 1, God sets out to create heavens and the earth, and he does so in order to establish his kingdom on earth in a physical, tangible place called earth. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates us as image bearers. We're to walk around and inhabit the earth, reflecting his glory wherever we go as image bearers. God has established his kingdom on earth through Adam and Eve. Now, what happens in Genesis 3, you may already know, sin enters the equation. And where sin enters, everything gets derailed, okay? So here's what we know right off the bat. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, all of a sudden there's a, there's a wedge driven between Adam and Eve. They're now embarrassed of their body parts, they're shameful and they're hiding from one another. It's very subtle, but we see a fracture there, don't we? We also see a fracture between the relationship of Adam and Eve and God, because now they're hiding from him. They're feeling the shame of what they've done. So they have run and they've hidden from God. God encounters them and he says, listen, everything is different now. Now we know at that moment, everything changes. But what I would propose to you as you read from Genesis three all the way through Genesis 11, it's like an unraveling of all that was good, like a string on a garment, you know, you just keep unraveling, unraveling it. Because what starts out really subtle with Adam and Eve being embarrassed of one another in chapter three, the first thing that happens in chapter four is what? Cain kills Abel. And so that, that, that awkwardness, that sense of shame that was dividing them, it gives way to jealousy and rage like that. 
And so what begins to unravel in Genesis 3, in Genesis 4, becomes murder. By the time we get to Genesis like 6, 7, and 8, the world is corrupt and the thoughts of man are evil all the time. We have the flood climaxing at Genesis chapter 11. Now, you familiar with what happens in Genesis chapter 11? This is where man begins to gather themselves together in a city called the city of Babel, and they begin to build a tower to reach the heavens. And their main objective, according to Genesis 11, is to build a great name for who? For themselves. See, this was ultimately what they were created to do, was to bear God's image and make a great name for him on earth. And as sin enters the world and all of God's beautiful good creation becomes unraveled, the climax is in Genesis chapter 11 where man has basically said, we want to be God. We don't need God to get to heaven. We don't desire to build a great name for God here on earth. We want to build a great name for ourselves. Now, what do you remember about that story? How does God thwart their plans? It's a very subtle and a very simple thing. He confuses their language. That's all he does confuses their language. They were unified in sin against God and now all of a sudden they're divided against one another. And this is the birth of the nations. From here, people begin to disperse and move out from that particular region geographically into Europe, into further south into Africa and further east across Asia. And we see the nations begin to form. Okay, this is Genesis 11. What's the very first thing that happens in Genesis 12? God begins with a promise, doesn't he? To Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your family is going to become a great nation. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless the nations or other ethnicities of the earth. You feel that? Matthew 28, Jesus says what? Go, make disciples of the nations. Do you see what's happening in Acts 2? God is putting back together what unraveled in the fall. He's reestablishing his kingdom here on earth, not just through one man and one nation, all nations coming together, all ethnicities, all birth languages, all skin colors, all backgrounds coming together as one people under the lordship of Jesus. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, we see the unfolding plan of God to rescue the nations. If you're taking notes, when the Holy Spirit of God falls on the believers at Pentecost, God is displaying his power and plan to rescue the nations and restore his kingdom. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what your ethnical background is. Doesn't matter whether you came from a noble family or a poor family, what color your skin is, whether you're black or white, maybe you're black and white, right? Doesn't matter. God is restoring through the work of Christ one people under the lordship of Jesus. And that's us, church, that's us. Think about that. You are one family not with just each other, but with every believer who has ever walked. The 120 who are here, the Holy Spirit has fallen on you and filled you the same way. And in doing so, he's united us with them as one people and one family. That's why when you get to Revelation, you're gonna read over and over again that that the multitude of the people sounds like the roar of of a thousand or many waters coming together from every what? Nation, every tribe, 
every language. Now, here's what I wanna, I wanna end with today. We're gonna come back. It's gonna take us two more weeks to finish Acts chapter two, okay? It's gonna be good. Um, but I wanna maybe stop here and let's just stop and acknowledge what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. So we know His Holy Spirit is present, whether we feel it or not. We know that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin, guide us towards truth, and empower us to do ministry, right? We're just taking direct promises from God's word. We know that's true today. So the question is, where are you? Where are you? If you're here today and a Christian, have you been struggling with just believing? Just believing that it's true that God's spirit lives in you? Maybe you've been through one of those seasons and you're still in the middle of one of those seasons, just struggle. Feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and coming back. Okay, that's what it feels like, but is that what's true? Romans 8 says that whenever you can't even find the words to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. So even when we feel like our prayers are hitting the ceiling, what do we know? We know that God hears us. He hears our groaning. He hears our emotional longings that we can't even articulate. Maybe today you've realized, you know what, I need to take some inventory of my life and, and really look at where the Holy Spirit is guiding me towards truth. Maybe like you, maybe you like the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 7, he says, he says this, why do I keep doing all the junk I don't wanna do? And I can't do the things I wanna do. He's talking about that, that wrestling match between the Holy Spirit and your flesh. Maybe that's where you are. And you realize, you know what? I need to surrender my flesh to the Holy Spirit in this moment. God's calling me to do some things that are either intimidating or scary or right, just outside of my comfort zone, but I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit in me. I'm gonna say yes to God. Maybe there's that person in your life and you just know God keeps bringing them to your mind to share with them, to talk with them, to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to them. But maybe you and like I sometimes, you're, you're struck with fear or intimidation and, and so you haven't done it yet. And today you realize that the Holy Spirit is in you. All you have to do is participate in what he's doing. He'll even give you words to say if you will but just believe him and engage in that conversation. I wanna end here. Maybe somebody here today isn't a Christian. And so today you're, you're, you're asking the question, man, I, I hear a lot of exciting things happening in the church and the people of God. And how do I get in on that? How, how do I become part of God's family? How do I get this empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God in my life? It kind of freaks me out, but how do I get it? Here's what, here's what the Bible says, that when you believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and you trust him, completely trust him, in that moment, God adopts you into his family. You are his and he seals you with his Holy Spirit. He says to you, you're mine. You belong to me. Like a son belongs to a father, you belong to me. And I will give you my spirit as a gift. Don't worry about, you know, some freaky Wizard of Oz, freak show, scary kind of thing happening. You'll, you'll love it. You'll know, you'll know my spirit. He'll prompt you, he'll guide you, he'll convict you, he'll encourage you, he'll empower you. He'll work supernaturally through you. It may be something as simple as putting papers in a chair, leading worship, praying over someone, speaking in tongues, healing. It's up to him. He, he gets to decide how he wants to gift you. 
But I want you to understand this. To be a Christian means to solely trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm gonna pray for us now. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward. And we, in all of our services, we have prayer partners who during the end of our services stand in the back and they wear a lanyard. So if you want somebody to pray with you, they'll be honored to pray with you. They have a lanyard that says prayer partner. Um, you can slip into one of our prayer and counseling rooms. You could grab a spouse. You could go by yourself. You can come down here and kneel and pray. Those are all ways you can respond, however God leads you. We're gonna stand and sing in just a moment. If you would rather just stay seated and pray or contemplate or listen, like, feel free to do that. If you wanna stand and sing with us, we're gonna invite you to do that as well. Let's pray together now as we prepare to respond.